Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. If you get out your Bibles this morning, we're gonna be in Galatians chapter three and uh, finishing up this chapter uh, this morning. We've been going through the book of Galatians together as a church and this is our 10th study in Galatians and uh, this will be kind of the halfway point of our time in uh, this book together. And while you guys are turning there, I wanted to talk pastorally about the life group quarter that's coming up. The origin of life groups for us as a church actually goes back to my third year as the lead pastor of the church here, which was about 12 years ago, um, where the church had, because I was a new pastor and a younger pastor, uh, the church had changed quite a bit. A lot of people had come in, a lot of people had left, and what I began noticing was that we were in a season where we really didn't know each other very well. All the signs of that were evidence. You know, after service, people didn't know who to talk to. They were leaving really quickly, kind of looking down at their feet a lot on the patio, rushing to the car real quickly. And I know for some of you who are outward and gregarious, that's no big deal at all. You can make a friend in three minutes. But for a lot of us, it was a hard thing and an issue. And so as pastors, we began praying about this problem uh, because in part, I believe that um, fellowship leads to personal growth if it's done correctly. I've seen people who have been in Bible studies and been in ministries for decades, but there have been major areas of their lives that have been unaddressed because they haven't opened themselves up to another group of strong Christians who could help point them in the right direction. They know a lot maybe about the word, but it's yet to really confront who they are and to help them grow and transform. And I believe quite often in groups, that's how this takes place. You're going through life, you're raising a kid, you don't know what to do with them at this new season, they're throwing some curveballs at you, and there's other people there who have faced something similar. You're going through life and all of a sudden you're beset with some sickness or illness or injury that you'd not planned or anticipated for, yet there's someone else in the group who has gone through that that can give you lessons that you can lean upon. You're going through life, you're feeling lonely, and there's people who have gone through that as well. I, I think a lot of times the things that we need in the Christian life are found in the context of community. It's there, I believe, that the word comes alive. So as a church, uh, our pastors, we made a decision at that time that we were going to restructure the way that we did things. We had a kind of a ministry model that said, we want to have as many ministries as possible for as many individualized, subspecific needs as possible. So I think at one point we had 46 different ministries in the church. I mean, I swear there was a ministry for the left-handed golfers with a 14-plus handicap. I mean, we had so many different ministries, and what we discovered was that about 10% or 15% of the people went to those ministries, and about 10 or 15% of the people ran all of those ministries. But a lot of us just weren't engaging. 
we weren't connecting. And so we decided that we would begin to phase out or sunset lots of ministries in the church. We were no longer gonna have a model that focused on uh, specific life stages and things like that, but that we were gonna focus on uh, having groups together to try to get a high percentage of our church gathering together for two 12-week quarters each year in homes dedicated to each other, talking about scripture from the previous Sunday's text, praying for each other, and getting to know each other in life. And we believe that lots of non-programmed, beautiful, Jesus, spirit-led ministry has unfolded in our church as a result of those connections that people have made. So this spring quarter, we're gonna get it going again, and we've got plenty of groups for you if you've never been part of a group or have taken a break for a season to get plugged into that are open. Some groups are closed because they've got the same people and they've been meeting for many, many years. My wife, Christina, and I, we've been in the same group for the entire 12 years. It's changed a lot over time, uh, but the same core of people is there. And I can tell you that when you know people in that kind of context for that length of time, there's just stuff that happens. There's depth that you get to that you just can't get to quickly. So I'd encourage you to pray about it as pastors and leaders here in the church. This is not just the methodology or strategy that we think works best. We look in the Bible and that's what we see. We see a New Testament church that gathered together in big gatherings on the weekends and then during the week they got together in homes to live out their Christian life together. And uh, we believe that this is an effective, beautiful thing. So we'd encourage you, our desire as pastors, what what we would love to see more than anything is every single person who considers uh, Calvary Monterey, their church home, to be in a group this coming semester. So we're praying for that, and I just wanted to cast the vision and a background and heart for that a little bit this morning. All right, let's pray together, though, and ask God to help us in this very important passage of scripture. Lord, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the book of Galatians. I know for me it's kind of uh, been shaking me and bringing me back to the core of my Christianity. It has been confronting me in my heart and how I feel about you and how I relate to you. And Lord, I pray that that would be what you'd continue to do today especially in this passage as we think about what faith in the gospel does to us as people. So we love you, Lord. We thank you for preserving this passage for us all these years. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Okay, up to this point in the book of Galatians, Paul has been building a case that we can only be accepted by God through faith in the gospel, not by keeping the works of the law. Uh, Keeping the Old Testament law, Paul said in previous passages here in Galatians, is not necessary for new Christians. And what he did is he masterfully appealed to the Old Testament to prove that point. He pulled out people like Abraham and Moses. He quoted from Habakkuk and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He masterfully went back to the Old Testament to demonstrate that the law is not something that a New Testament Christian is obliged to keep. Okay, but today, instead of just looking back on the Old Testament, Paul is going to look inside of us. He's gonna ask the question, what does faith in the gospel do 
to you? What does faith in the gospel do to me? Is that, does anything real or substantive occur when we truly believe? And uh, what he's going to say is actually fairly radical. There's some radical concepts that are in this passage. Uh, and it's all good news, but before the good news, he tells us what we used to be, and that is some bad news. So that's what we're going to look at first. We're going to look first at the bad news, then the good. So let's read verse 23 and 24 together. Now, before faith came, Paul said, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. All right, in these verses, we learned that there are a couple of things that we used to be before we believed in Jesus. The first thing that we are without the gospel, according to Paul in verse 23, is imprisoned. Uh, he says we were held captive before our belief in Jesus. Now, we, we started wrestling with this idea last week because in verse 22, Paul said, Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Here he builds out on that idea and says we were held captive under the law before Jesus came. But what, what does that mean? What does it mean to be held captive under or by the law? Well, the word itself, the word captive, captive that Paul used here, it's, it's a word that they would use to describe what a military presence would do in a city where they're trying not to let anyone in or let anyone out of the city. In fact, this was used of Paul's life at one specific moment right after he became a Christian. Uh, he became a believer and went immediately to the city of Damascus, and there was a big uproar amongst the Jewish community. And so the governor of Damascus, he set a guard so that Paul could not escape. And even the Jewish contingent in the city also was watching the gates so that he could not depart. And it's the same word that's used here. He was held captive inside of Damascus. He was kept from leaving even though he wanted to leave. And the, the story is actually really cool because they made a, they took a big basket and they lowered Paul down from the walls of the city in a basket. And that's how the uh, bold and mighty and wonderful Paul the apostle got his start in ministry. But that is exactly what the law does to us. It restrains us or it imprisons us until Christ comes. It's a picture of, of being caged. You know, a cage can limit behavior, but a cage cannot change a heart. And I was, uh, came across recently a, a video online, and it was of a little boy, I, th I think in China, and he was uh, at a zoo, a little toddler, and his parents were filming him, and uh, some people around were filming him and he was standing in front of the lion's exhibit. So he's perfectly safe, but he's just a couple of feet away from a couple of lions and he's separated by this huge clear plexiglass wall. And at some point, it must have been his parents, they told him to turn around so that he could pose for a picture and so he backed up against the wall. And the lioness that was just on the other side of the glass, she just started looking at his little head and she approached real gingerly and then she opened up her mouth and she tried to surround her mouth her, around his little toddler head. She's like, he looks like a great little snack. And of course she ran right into the wall and her teeth and gums are all over the place and he has no idea he's totally safe. And 
Uh, the idea there, of course, is that the cage kept the lion from doing what it wanted to do, uh, but the cage did not change the lion, not substantially, substantially uh, rearrange what it was about. That's how the law is for us. It cannot bring true inner transformation. But because the law imprisons us until Jesus comes into our lives, what the law does is it slows down, it curbs the effects and practice of sin. I mean, think about it. If we lived in a world today where there, were no, there was no 10 commandments, there was no Bible, there was no scripture at all, uh, if we lived in a world today where there were no laws of nature that people could observe and see, and if we lived in a world today where no one had a conscience of any kind, none of those laws were present in any way, sin would be so much worse than it actually is. So that's the law's presence. It curbs or it guards us under sin. But the second thing that we are before faith in the gospel, according to Paul in verse 24, is we're under a guardian. Look at what he says there in verse 24. He said, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now, in the first century world, there was a position in wealthy families called a guardian. Uh, if you had means, you would uh, employ a person and they would help you raise your child from about age six to 16. Sounds kind of nice, doesn't it, for all the parents here today? And this uh, guardian, it's hard to compare them to anything in our modern world. They, they were definitely more than a tutor. They were more than a teacher. They were more than a schoolmaster. There, were, there was actually a harsh edge to what a guardian was. They would confront the imperfections as they saw it in the children with the goal of preparing them to maturity. Maybe uh, if you know Queen Elizabeth's story and you know that she, when she was young, had a governess who helped shape her and prepare her for life as a royal, uh, that idea is closer to what a guardian in the first century in Rome would have been. I've been searching my mind all week trying to find a, a comp for our society and culture. And the best one that I could think of, at least from my childhood, is that of vice principal. Uh, the vice principal all throughout my childhood was not the fun one. Uh, the vice principal was the disciplinarian. You didn't want to get caught by the vice principal. And that's kind of the idea of this guardian in those first century Roman households. And that's exactly what the law did for Israel and does for us before we know Jesus. It serves like a mirror that shows us our flaws and shows us our imperfections, even though it's powerless to substantially change any of those flaws. It speaks the truth to us, in other words. Uh, er earlier this month, uh, Christina and I, we celebrated our uh, 21st wedding anniversary, and we got away for a couple of nights together. And um, we, we love food, we love restaurants, and so uh, we ate a lot during uh, three days. And uh, I have this habit, you know, with this routine, every morning when I wake up and I'm at home, I have a little scale in our bathroom and it's connected to an app on my phone and I just, you know, I don't pay much attention to it, but I just kind of track my weight over time. I want to take care of myself and all of that. So I was gone for a few days and when I got back the first morning that I stood on the scale, uh, the app that the scale connects to, it gave me a notification I've never gotten before in all my years stepping on this scale. And it, it basically said something like, this is not Nate Holdridge. This is obviously somebody else because 
it's not the same person. They don't weigh the same, you know, kind of thing. And uh, I was like, thanks, Scale. I got the idea. I had a little too much fun. I'll be good now, you know, kind of thing. It spoke the truth. That's what the law is like. It's like a scale or a mirror or an honest governess who points us to our lack, our need, that we've fallen short of the glory of God. And the conclusion that we have to come to is that we need a different way to be accepted by God. We can't be accepted by God according to our goodness or our works. Unfortunately, that other way has appeared. We've been talking about this way. It's the way of the gospel, the way of Jesus. Paul said it like this in Romans 3, 21 and 22. He said, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law was a route, but it doesn't work for anybody. So now there's another way apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. It's now come the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All right, so that's, that's a little bit about who we were. We were imprisoned and we were guarded under the law. But now let's spend the rest, rest of our time this morning thinking about what we become when we believe in Jesus. Okay, the first thing that the text tells us that we become is we become sons of God after we place our faith in Jesus. For that, we have to look at verse 25 to 27. Paul said, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now here what Paul's doing is he's kind of continuing the idea of the guardian, the job of the guardian. And he tells us that when you believe in Jesus, you become a graduate of the guardian. Now you're in full maturity before God. You're like a full grown, he says, son in the sight of God. Now, when this happened in the first century, when you became 16 years of age and your guardians gave you the stamp of approval and you graduated from their care, you received a new change of clothes. You got some garments that said, I'm no longer a child, I'm now an adult full heir in the eyes of my parents. And the same thing happened to us when we believed in Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 27. He said, when we graduate from the law, we put on Christ. He's the garment that we wear. We're wearing Jesus. And if we've believed in Jesus, Paul said, it's like we've been fully immersed in Jesus, or he uses the word baptized into Jesus. So we're fully identified with the actual son of God. What this means is that when you believe in Jesus, you have a brand new status before God. You're no longer under a guardian. You're no longer imprisoned by the law. You are now a child of God. I wanna say a couple things about this first element of what we become as sons of God. Some of us kind of object a little bit, even at first reading of that phrase, because the idea that the gospel makes us sons of God it doesn't sound very gender inclusive to us. You know, why doesn't it say that we become children of God? Or why doesn't it say we become sons and daughters of God? In fact, even some modern translations retranslate what Paul said to make it read that way in English. But what Paul said in the Greek is he made us into sons of God. And to understand what Paul is saying, I think we have to remember the context that he's writing in. In the first century, 
to say that female believers became like sons of God in the sight of the Father, it elevated them beyond anything that their culture held out for them. In that society, only sons could be heirs in the family. In fact, most ancient cultures uh, forbade girls from receiving an inheritance from their families. So when Paul calls men and women who trust in Christ sons of God, what he's doing is suggesting that we all, male or female, receive the same exact inheritance before God, no matter our gender. And on top of this, if you consider what Paul is really saying, he's saying, when you become a Christian, you are clothed with the Son of God so that the Father looks at you and sees you as clothed in the righteousness of his only begotten Son. It would make sense that God would then say, I see you as a Son of God. The daughter of God, there is not one, did not die for us. The Son of God died for us. So we would expect to be clothed with the righteousness of the Son of God. Now, next time we're in Galatians, I'm going to get into the difficulty that some people have with thinking about God as Father. Uh, none of us has a perfect representation of God's fatherhood in our earthly human experience. No dad could ever be what God is. And by the way, it's not like God looked from heaven and searched the earth and said to himself, I'm looking for a title that describes what I'm like. And he saw all these dads bumbling along and he's like, that's what I'll be called, father. No, he's the original father. We're all just trying to emulate him and of course, falling far short. God is the perfect and real definition of what a father is. But what I wanna say here is that I do believe that the father wound that so many of us are nursing, along with the preoccupation of therapists about our dads and the mileage that storytellers get telling dad stories, I believe that all of those things are a clue or an indication that the Bible is true, that God has made us, that God has designed us. Because he seems to have made every single one of us with a father longing within. It's a longing, it's a love that only God can satisfy fully. And it can have, I believe, incredible ramifications on your psyche, your soul, your living, your inner health. I think, in fact, in one way, I would describe progress in the Christian life or Christian maturity as a continual process of learning and relearning of God as your father. So I can't wait to talk more about that subject with you when we get to chapter four. But I also want to give one little exhortation before I move on to the next thing that we are uh, to parents and anybody that's working with the next generation based on what we've looked at so far here in this passage of Galatians. If the law could only regulate Israel but could not transform their hearts, uh, and if the law just guards us but does not bring true change, then what we should want for our children more than anything is not an outward conformity, but for God to reach into their hearts with the beautiful and precious gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I, I wanna remind you of this because rules are important for kids. Uh, it's important for children to learn how to be obedient and uh, structure helps create a civilization. But none of those things should be mistaken for true inner transformation. Being polite, in other words, is not the same as being born again. And that's what we want. We want for our kids to know Jesus, to be born again. The way I pray for my kids is the way Paul prayed for the churches that he wrote to in the New Testament. Over and over again, what he prayed is that people would have an epiphany about Jesus, that their eyes would be open and that they would understand to a fresher degree the length, width, depth, and height of the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And when a, when a child understands that, when a person understands that, they're well on their way. Jesus has become famous in their heart and God's spirit can begin working from the inside out. Okay, the, the second thing though that I wanna show you we become after we place our faith in Jesus is we become one in Christ Jesus, one in Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul said in verse 28, he said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now this is a brilliant statement from Paul, but we're gonna spend a few minutes talking about it, thinking about its implications and its truth. In one stroke of his pen, Paul basically says here that all the normal ways that humanity likes to divide and war and belittle others, they're, they're, they're done away with in Jesus. Uh, it's not that we lose our beautiful and God-given distinctions. Men are still men, women are still women, and cultures are retained and can be celebrated. But before God and one another, we are all one in Christ Jesus. And think about this. This should make perfect sense to us if we understand everyone's universal need for the message of the gospel. Has there ever been even one Jew or one non-Jew who has not needed the blood of Jesus to be saved. Every person from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue has needed the message of the gospel. Is there even one person from the humblest position in society or the highest magnitude of society who has not needed the blood of Jesus? Is there even one man in the world or one woman in the world who can be accepted by God according to their works? The answer to that question is no, not one. We all need the blood of Jesus. So Paul knew that once anyone, anywhere, at any time trusts in Christ, they are transferred into God's family and totally clothed with Christ. And that radical unification with Christ makes us radically, according to Paul, unified to each other. This was really important for the Galatians to hear because remember, legalists had come into them, Jewish teachers, and who, who had said, if you really want to be in Christ's family, you need to be obedient to the ceremonial Old Testament laws that Israel practices. And if you don't, you're a second-class citizen here in God's household. But the gospel, according to Paul, makes us all one. Through him, the unity that so many people crave is possible. In Jesus, we can find unity across cultures, classes, and both genders. 
In other words, in the, in the same way that one human body is comprised of many parts, so we are unified to one another in Jesus. We are one, we're on the same team, we're in the same family, and none of us in Christ are in a forgotten or useless position before God. Every one of us has the same value before God. Now again, this, this idea was radical in the first century. Uh, for the Galatians to believe that people from a Greek culture were on the same level before God as the Jew, that women were on the same level as men before God, or that the poor in the church were on the same level as the wealthy in the church, all of that was revolutionary in the first century. Now, I want to clarify, though, that Paul is not arguing that our distinctions are erased because of Jesus. He's not saying that. As I've already suggested, our, our racial differences, our gender di di distinctions, they're of divine design. And our class distinctions, even, can become beautiful when influenced by Jesus. But I, but I have to say this right here because Galatians 3.28 has been ripped out of context by some who use it as a way to say specifically that gender is no longer something that Christians should regard and that men and women somehow are interchangeable on this side of the cross. I, I, I wanna say it in a few ways, but one way I would say it is if that's the message of the Bible, it's horrible at communicating that. It's just, just so murky. That's not the clear teaching of Scripture. Even elsewhere in Paul's writings, maleness and femaleness are regarded as still relevant. And because they are, Paul had instructions regarding our sexual activity, how we behave sexually. He had instructions concerning the church, who can be a pastor or an elder. He had instructions about the roles of men and women in the context of marriage and family. And some of you might object to that idea. You might think to yourself, well, it's impossible. How can someone be both equal in Christ, but have different roles before God? But this is found in the Trinity itself, the very core of who God is. In the same way that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all equal within the Trinity, yet have different and complementary functions. The father did not come to die for the sins of the world, but the son came to die for the sins of the world. So we are equal before God, yet have different and complementary functions, especially within the church and family structure. Now, Jesus had a different role than the father, as I said, but no less dignity than the father. He's not lesser than the father. And while men and women have different roles from one another in certain spheres, they have no less dignity from one another because of the gospel. And this is hard for many modern minds to accept, but in my opinion, it should be beautiful in Christ to know that we are a great complement to each other because it helps us resist the spirit of sameness. I can instead embrace who I am in Christ and run in that beautiful thing rather than striving for a sameness that cancels distinctions. Now, I hope we understand this uh, when it comes to the first category that Paul talked about. Uh, he talked about cultural or racial distinctions. Uh, we're not supposed to have a sort of colorblindness 
that cannot appreciate different races or different cultures or different heritages that are represented inside the church today. Instead, we're to celebrate that God's kingdom is comprised of every tribe and nation and tongue. We will be celebrating that for all of eternity. And neither should we then obliterate both genders by pretending they don't exist. Instead, we should celebrate men and women for what God has made them to be. Now, now one of the mistakes the church has often made is an, give an over-definition of what men are or an over-definition of what women are. I'm trying to say within the confines of what scripture says a man and a woman are, not what culture says, not what tradition says, but what scripture says. So I'm not saying that all the men need to be ax-throwing lumberjacks who drink uh, IPAs on the weekend. Uh, I'm just saying that we need to look into the word and find out what does what God God say, I am. Now, as much as what I've been talking about is how many modern believers have misunderstood this verse, I, I think I'd be remiss not to also say that the church has often failed to practice this verse, even if they have understood it. Um, you know, we, we can rejoice in the church that there were pockets of Christianity in history who, for instance, stood up against the transatlantic slave trade. Or we can celebrate that there have been people, leaders in the church and churches themselves who have stood up against racial prejudice and injustice. And I think we can even celebrate today when men or women of God lay down their lives to work for biblical forms of justice. Not the world's definition of it, but biblical forms of justice today. Uh, that's beautiful. But the reality is that there have often been components of the church who have looked down on others. And whether it be one race looking down on another, one class looking down on another, or one gender looking down on another, it has no place in the body of Christ. All right, lastly, concerning this verse, I think it's worth mentioning that Paul is not talking to the Roman Empire or the United States of America when he says these things. He's talking to those in Christ about what the gospel produces. He was not talking to the Roman culture at large. But the thing is, as Christianity spread in the first century, changed hearts and changed perspectives would have slowly happened throughout the entire Roman Empire. Look, let me give you an example. Let's say uh, you had a mom and dad in a first century Roman household who the way of doing things was the oldest son gets the entire inheritance. No, no daughters will get anything from their parents. They become Christians, they start studying the gospel, they begin learning, our daughter has the same standing before God as our son has. Why are we giving in to this uh, cultural custom? Let's give an inheritance to our daughter as well. And as that began to spread in the Christian community, it would begin to spread throughout the Roman culture as well. Or take uh, the practice that they blindingly went along with of their version of slavery, which was far different than our nation's history of slavery, ours is much more brutal than theirs was, but theirs was still a brutal, terrible thing that needed to go away. Uh, over time, they begin thinking as, as they become Christians, wow, I, I am no better than this person who's been my servant. I should 
as Jesus set me free, I should give them their freedom as well. And as that began to spread through Christian households, it began to spread through the empire. It was a slow and steady and sure process. All this would have begun to spread throughout everyday life in the Roman world as Christianity spread throughout the Roman world. This is one of the reasons why many believers, including myself, believe that what the world needs most in our divided times is the unifying message of the gospel. It might change things slowly, but it's the only thing that really actually changes things. Now, at this point in my teaching, I've, I've probably like offended everybody on something. And some of you might be squirming at this point uh, for one reason or another. And the reason actually might be because, you know, here's this beautiful verse about us being one in Christ and how the gospel puts us all on the same level. And you might be looking back at your experience of the church and you might be saying, That's, that just hasn't been my experience. I've not seen it as, an, as a welcoming, uh, unified group, but a, but a divisive and divided one. And uh, listen, uh, I grew up in the church. My father was a church planter. I've experienced plenty of church pain in my life. Church-caused pain is terrible. But I think on one hand, it's to be expected because there is a, there's really only one perfect, sinless member of the church. Uh, he's the cornerstone member. His name's Jesus, if you don't know him. <laughs> um, the rest of us are flawed people who are in a process with and before God. I came across this article recently uh, that I thought illustrated this well. It was Apparently, they've discovered a new uh, emperor penguin colony in Antarctica. There are 61 of them that we know about. And I guess they're really hard to find because Antarctica is really big and not, there's not like roads to drive around. You know, it's tough to get around. So they're hard to find. Uh, they're kind of slowly, their population is decreasing. So people are trying to track these things and figure out how many of them are. And they, they recently discovered a really big one. And... What caught my interest, though, was how scientists find these penguin colonies these days. What they do is they take a satellite, and they just look over Antarctica, and any place that's pristine and crisp and white, they know, okay, there's no uh, penguins there, but they wait until they find a huge area that is brown, because apparently even penguins, they go number two also. And that's what they're looking for is Penguin poo. And uh, I thought to myself, that's a fantastic, a fantastic picture of the church. Uh, <laughs> it could be a bit messy at times. We're our people after all. But despite all that, we need the colony. We can't survive out on our own. We need one another. So my encouragement, if you've experienced pain in the church, is to be patient and to endure and don't run away from Christ's bride. Okay, the last thing that I wanna show you, and this one will be quick, that we become after faith in Christ is we, we become Abraham's offspring. Uh, it says in verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, we've already been talking about this, this is why I'm not gonna take a long time on this particular point. This is kind of a recap of something he's already said in the previous verses of Galatians. When you believe, Galatia, Galatians, when you believe in the gospel, uh, you are put in the line of Abraham. You're wrapped up in God's promises and plans to Abraham, the father of faith. 
Now, like I said earlier, it's hard to overstate how shocking this would have been to the Galatian Christians. I mean, with the false teacher's message in their ears, they would have always thought Abraham was on one plane and one tier, and they were on a lesser plane or a lesser tier. But now Paul comes along and he says, when you believe in Jesus, you're put in the very same line, the family tree of Abraham. You're the offspring of Abraham himself. This would be beautiful to them because it would help them understand we're not secondary in God's mind. We're not an afterthought in God's mind. We're not a PS in the letter that God is writing. We're not an addendum or an attachment. When we believe in Jesus, we're put in the plan of God that he established all the way back in the pages of Genesis. And that's true. If you believe in Jesus, you're on the same level as the saints of old. You read about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Moses or Joshua or Samuel or David or Esther or Nehemiah or Isaiah. We are in the same category before God as they are. We're Abraham's offspring because we are Christ's, he says. Now, this truth doesn't negate that I think that in the future, God is going to revive biological Israel and he's going to do some amazing things in their midst, I believe in the millennial reign and rule of Jesus, which I've talked about uh, before. But what we are is the spiritual seed of Abraham, and we're considered part of God's program on earth in every way. We are no afterthought in the mind of God. Now, everything we've talked about today is what it should do to you. It should fill you with a sense of meaning and significance. Uh, if, if all this is true, if you've been set free from the law, if you're a son of God because of the son of God, if we're one in Christ, if you're the offspring of Abraham today by simple faith in Jesus, uh, these are radical truths. And I would encourage you to meditate upon them until you feel them and their weight. I want you to notice the direction of all of these changes. I mean, you have up to heaven, our lives have changed. We're sons of God. Around the globe, our lives have changed. We're one in Christ with every other believer on the face of the planet. And deep into human history, we're connected to Abraham. We have an ancient line that we're part of. In radical directions, our lives have been changed by Jesus. Okay, but, but how should we respond to all these truths? Let me give you four quick suggestions and we'll be done. Okay, first, if, if the first thing is true, if life under the law was unable to produce transformation, then don't you think that one application of this passage would be, let's turn to the right places for true transformation. And the reason I say that is because a lot of us, we think, okay, I wanna grow, I wanna change, what I'll do is I'll just try harder. But the New Testament presents a paradigm where you have your old body of sin, but you're also a new creature in Christ, and the Spirit helps you overcome your temptations. So feed the Spirit. And so we're gonna talk about that when we get to Galatians chapter five. So turn to the right places for victory. Second, if it's true that we are now sons of God, like Paul said, then I think that what this means is that we should expect a lifetime of learning to experience God as our Father. Like I said, we're going to talk about this more as we move through Galatians. 
Uh, but I think I'd say it like this. Learning about God as your father, uh, if it's not clunky and awkward at times, if there's not moments where you sit down to pray and you just don't know what to do and it feels stiff, uh, if that never happens, you're probably doing it wrong. Uh, to, to learn of God as Father, it takes, a, it takes a lifetime. It takes continual confrontation with who you are. Okay, the third thing I think I'd say is, if we are truly one in Christ, like Paul said, then we must resist the voices of division that seek to inflame us against other cultures, other classes, or the other gender. Instead, we need to appreciate our differences and rejoice that despite them, we are one in Jesus, and then we should treat one another with the utmost respect. Okay, and lastly, if we are Abraham's offspring, like this passage says, we should let that sink into our lives, the truth that we are not accidents. We are part of God's original purpose and plan. We're part of God's long and beautiful redemptive plan. We're part of a massive family tree uh, connected to Abraham, the father of faith. A lot of people have come before us, but here's the thing, a lot of people will come after us. Hopefully, a lot of people will come after us in connection to us. We'll have spiritual offspring just as Abraham did. And when that occurs, we have to remember we are one. We are all part of that family together. And we should let that sink into our lives, that our lives are on purpose, but are not accidental in God's sight. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.